0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Lin Shan Jiang. Today, I'm so delighted to have Professor Wang Ban with us here on air. Professor Wang, would you like to say hi to the listeners?
0: Now, hi. I'm very delighted to meet you on the web, uh, on this uh, online. Uh, this is the first time I had an interview in this fashion, so I, I expressed my Gratitude and thanks to Shan.
1: Thank you, Professor Wang. So first, let me introduce Professor Wang Ban. Uh, Professor Wang is the William Hussing Doubt Chair Professor in Chinese Studies in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures and Comparative Literature at Stanford University. His major publications include The Sublime Figure of History, Aesthetics and Politics in 20th Century China, Illuminations from the Past, History and Memory, and narrative perspective and irony in Chinese and American fiction. He edited Words and Their Stories, Essays on the Language of the Chinese Revolution, Chinese Visions of World Order. He co-edited Trauma and Cinema, The Image of China in the American Classroom, China and New Left Visions, and Debating Socialist Legacy in China. Today, we are discussing Professor Wang Ban's new monograph, China in the World, Culture, Politics, and World Vision, published by Duke University Press in 2022. We can see many close connections between this new book with the additive volume, Chinese Visions of the World Other, Tianxia, Culture, and World Politics, also published by Duke University Press in 2017. Besides, I can also see the link between your new book with your earlier books, The Sublime Figure of History and Illuminations from the Past, Professor Wang continues the discussion of Kantian and Hegelian philosophies, as well as the formation of modern China in relation to the world. Actually, all this reminds me of the first time I met Professor Wang when I was a master's student in the Department of Foreign Languages and Literatures at Tsinghua University in China in November 2015. Professor Yan Haiping invited Professor Wang to give two seminars in English. One is called Internationalism and World Literature, and the other is called National Culture and World Literature, as well as a campus-wide talk in Chinese entitled Rethinking World Literature and Internationalism in the Age of Global Capital. In Tsinghua University, I also took Professor Yan's graduate seminar about cosmopolitanism, and we chased the intellectual trajectory from Kant, Hegel, to Kang Youwei, Liang Qichao, and Mao Zedong. These were the starting points for me to think about connection between national literature and world literature, as well as the ideas of cosmopolitanism and internationalism in relation to China. This quarter at University of California, Santa Barbara, where I'm at right now, I'm also taking Professor Shi Hanping's graduate seminar entitled, World Literature and Modern China, and we just discussed Professor Wang's new book in relation to the socialist film Five Golden Flowers, which is also the text Professor Wang discussed in the fifth chapter, National Unity, Ethnicity, and Socialist Utopia in Five Golden Flowers. Some of the questions in this interview are also based on our class discussion. I really appreciate all the ideas generated in the discussion. Before we go into details of Professor Wang's book, I would like to offer the listeners an overview of it. In China and the World, Professor Wang chases the evolution of modern China from the late 19th century to the present. With a focus on tensions and connections between national formation and international outlooks, Professor Wang shows how Asian visions persist even as China has adopted and revised the Western nation state form. The concept of Tianxia, meaning all under heaven, has constantly been updated into modern outlooks that value unity, equality, and reciprocity as key to overcoming interstate conflict, social fragmentation, and ethnic divides. Instead of geopolitical dominance, China's worldviews stem as much from the age-old desire for world unity as from absorbing the Western ideas of the Enlightenment, humanism, and socialism. Examining political writings, literature, and film, Professor Wang presents a narrative of the country's pursuits of decolonization, national independence, notions of national form, socialist internationalism, alternative development, and solidarity with third-world nations. Rather than national exceptionalism, Chinese worldviews aspire to a shared, integrated, and equal world. So now we will get started with our interview. The very first question, of course, is always this motivation of project. So I'm wondering, what is your motivation to do this project? And why do you consider Tianxia all under heaven as a significant discourse to discuss China in the world?
0: Thank you for the question. What motivated me to look into this subject is the phenomenon that we are familiar with now. is the rise of China in the last two or three decades. This phenomenon invited a lot of criticism and perceptions and even distortions. So I'm not Very happy with some of the misperceptions, distortions. There is the idea that China, with its increased power in the world, poses a threat to the world order. Some say that it will bring beneficial, positive changes to the world. Some say that China is driven by by nationalism and is bent on expanding its self-serving agenda around the world. And some Chinese thinkers also said that uh, China has broken with its ancient and socialist past, right? Getting on track with capitalist uh, globalization, right? So I take issues uh, with these uh, distortions. I contend in the book that China has indeed long had a ambition to be a part of the world. Early thinkers uh, recognized the importance of joining the modern world, which is composed of nation states, right? But these thinkers wanted to go beyond this very narrow framework, a world composed of nation states, uh, because the current nation state system does not make for a peaceful world right now, right? It's very conflicted, polarized, it's uneven structure of power, a dominant power uh, and subordinated nations. So that sort of a status quo of modern nation state runs contrary to the idea of a, what a world is supposed to be. The we inherited idea of Tian Xia from the ancient classic and sources and education, the idea of Tianxia projects a world of coexistence, uh, economic exchange, as we see in the uh, ancient silk, silk Road program, and also a shared a common values. So, Chinese thinkers always have Tianxia in the back of their mind. It's almost like an unconscious and back of their mind when they attempt to enter the world of nation states. So Tianxia has been a, a submerged and obscured idea because of the China's drive to enter the world of nation state, yet it also in the, in the back uh, sort of driven, drive them to go beyond the nation state. And this idea resurfaces at many points uh, in modern Chinese history uh, in a form of nationalism, in a form of internationalism, in the form of cosmopolitanism, and third world relationship.
1: Yeah, now that you mentioned all these connections between all these terms, I think we can start from the beginning of first few chapters, which is the relationship between Tianxia, all under heaven, and Datong, great unity. These two ideas are very ancient in all kinds of ways. So what's the relationship between them? And also in your first few chapters, you discuss a lot of very important intellectuals in the modern China, such as Kang Youwei, Liang Qichao, and Sun Zhongshan. So how do they adopt and renovate these ideas into the so-called liberal
0: cosmopolitanism? So uh, Tianxia and Dātong are exchangeable in some ways. But, but still, I think that the distinction is still very important from the question. Tianxia is a, it's all under heaven, right? It is distinct from another concept, empire. We still talk about empire as a administrative structure, right, a uh, bureaucratic administrative structure. But Tianxia refers to a regime of value and culture as well as a social economic process. People uh, should have access to a social economic process. They can till the land, they can do their own thing, right? Tianxia would allow for that to happen. But Da Tong. Points to a a vision of unitary and shared, or shareable ideas and sensibility uh, that allow people to coexist and participate in a peaceful exchange. So it's a slightly different, higher vision than Tianxia. I, f- I think Datong because it's un- it's basically on the unitary. Unitary here uh, should not be. Uh, understood as a um, uniform or homogeneity, right, the same, the same, right? It's not the same. Rather, it's an idea that emphasizes the unitariness, right? Some kind of unity within differences. You still keep the differences. In Chinese, it said tong, right? You have the, the common ground, yet you still have keep your, preserve your differences. This is actually applies very well to the chapter you mentioned, Golden Flowers mentioned, because there's a national unity within ethnic diversity. Ethnic groups still keep their own culture, even though their culture is elevated into a national culture, right? So you you can see the the dialectic between the differences and unity. So Chu Tong Chun Yi really uh, characterizes It is an antidote to the divisiveness and tribalism and military conflict that characterized the modern nation-state system. Datong is is an idea that deposited uh, as an antidote, as a critique of this very conflicted warlike system of nation-state. So always at each other's throats, right? It's a Darwinian struggle for existence, that sort of thing. Now, now Liang, Liang Qichao has thought about thought about this idea of cosmopolitan state. Uh, it means the combination of the nation-state form he borrows from Western nation-state. And he endows the Western nation-state form with the Ability to relate to other people, other states, to relate and cooperate, cooperate with other states in building and managing a more friendly and a uh, world order. Uh, Sun jong has the similar ideas. We know that Sun, uh, Sun Yat-sen right, was a uh, very strong nationalist, yet. As a nationalist, he must have some kind of a reservation about cosmopolitanism, right? He actually said that uh, cosmopolitanism was premature for China because China was a colonized nation. There's no, you are not in a position, we are not in a position to promote cosmopolitanism when when we are subjugated nation, he said. So it's an illusion. It's too early to promote cosmopolitanism. But Sun Yat-sen still expected China to take on cosmopolitanism or cosmopolitan responsibility when the time is right. Now, what is the time? When the time comes, when China becomes stronger, right? And play a role in the world arena. So he said that uh, we must achieve the status of equality and freedom with other nations before we promote cosmopolitanism. they have the nation-state idea and cosmopolitanism as it, following it, right? So it's not just simply a nation self-serving nation-state, selfish nation-state. Sun Yat-sen's remark captures the dialectic interplay between national discourse and cosmopolitan aspiration. And Mao has the, also a similar idea. Mao Zedong, he, he links communism to datong at many points right he claimed that uh, i quote here uh, only china's independence and liberation will make it possible to participate in internationalism which, which means the communism the world communism so to be involved uh, and to be a player in creating an, a unitary world order, a country has become independent and powerful nation. Okay, so that's the idea. So th- these th- these ideas are not part of liberal cosmopolitanism. In the introduction, I in the introduction and also in Liang chapter, I talk about the di- distinction between liberal cosmopolitanism and distinction between liberal cosmopolitanism and socialist internationalism. Now, liberal cosmopolitanism believes that trade, commerce, and worldwide capitalist circuit, right? The uh, flow of capital and expansion market will facilitate global connectivity and make the world a civil place, very civil and a public place or a marketplace or a fair. Right. Sounds like a like, uh, uh, sort of a idea because people come together to exchange ideas and goods. So that's a very good idea. But the history of 20th century proved uh, that to be an illusion. Why? Why is illusion? Revolutionary thinkers like uh, Mao Zedong, even Sen Yassen and Zhou Li Boop, they think like uh, Sun Jong-san, They think in the way that Sun San thinks. Uh, they see the, clearly that the capitalist world order is dominated by an unequal, even predatory structure. Uh, the structure is colonialism and p- imperialism. And this structure makes the world a, a very miserable place for the wretched of Earth, the majority of the world's population, actually. For the subalterns, is a, a, a hell of a place for subalterns. These revolutionary thinkers promote alliance and solidarity among the oppressed and colonized nations. This is a world-making project, just as the capitalism is a world-making project. but it's two different kinds of world-making projects. Socialist international rests on the national independence and decolonization movements. Right This is the one, one part of socialist internationalism. And the other part is the alliance and mutual support among the colonized and independence-seeking nations. So you you have two parts. Uh, You have, you you need to have a nation first, and then you have support and solidarity between nations. And this is, it runs through the later Third World Project. And it still persists in the current discussion of the potential of social movements in the global South, right? Because we still live in a, a, a world order that is very, very uh, unequal, right? Economically, they're unequal.
1: Yeah, I think you touch upon point. The next question that I'm going to ask it's the deviation from this kind of liberal cosmopolitanism and then building up the socialist internationalism, especially by Mao Zedong and then Zhou bo that you discussed a lot in chapter three. But at the same time, I, I do have this question that I think it's very central. And I think it's always quite controversial That is, different kinds of world-making projects we we're just talking about. And there's this tension between you want to find equality and equity, but at the same time, you always face different kinds of hierarchies and powers. Mm. And you were talking about this power of capital. But at the same time, we may have military power. I may recall a very uh, classical film in the Chinese-speaking world, Zhang Yimou's hero, Inxiong, in 2002. Mm. This ending that finally military power Reigns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so how do you th- see that tension there: yeah,
0: yeah this is a very a very very good question because the Tianxia idea, uh, as we noted earlier, is connected to the empire building. Empire is by its nature a hierarchical structure it's about having a dominant power uh, presiding over lesser power so Tianxia idea proposes the equality, but the, the equality and the, the universal access to social economic benefits and resources, that's Tianxia idea. Like in a sort of a ruling class, benevolent compassion for Ren, ren Zheng, right? Ren zheng for common people. That's, that's more Tianxia value virtue de. but the other side of tianxia is a uh, what might call the legal legalist thinking fajia legalist thinking think that the to overcome the conflict you need a bigger power to overcome to prevail over the chaotic and anarchistic the splitting separated forces in order to overcome the separate forces and bring them into the fold you have to have sort of a unequal power relations so this is a the part of the contradiction within the tianxia idea and this has been running through all the discussion and practices in ancient china and modern china right is is tianxia a equality or is tianxia is, is another geopolitical domination. I discussed that in my, the edited volume, uh, in, in the introduction, in the edited volume, right, because it's running together. Another interesting thing about this, uh, this is that the hierarchy itself is not necessarily an oppressive thing, not necessarily. Most of the time it's very oppressive, Is a dominating oppressive. But if you think of a hierarchy a, as a sort of more ideal family relationship, uh, ideal family relations, you need the hierarchy. Because you, you need to have the authority of the father and you need to have the legitimacy of a ruler. In the village community, you need to have the authority of the tradition or authority of the, the elders, right? In order to keep social function in a peaceful fashion, uh, this is even true of democratic society, even true of democracy. You, you need to have the representative of the people. But the representative is, is, a, is a, in the higher order of political st- structure. So th- that's why in the Republican and Democratic society, the leadership is still very important. But the leadership involves hierarchy. The leadership is really, and meritocracy, I mean the enlightened leadership. Meritocracy, uh, needs the virtue, it needs the exemplary, the knowledge, right? And expertise to manage a democratic society, right? So that's why leadership is so important. Uh, leadership involves hierarchy, involves hierarchy, I exactly. So I think the, the one way to soften the, the, the sting of hierarchy is to say, Right, The uh, hierarchy may be reciprocity, uh, maybe a re- reciprocal relationship, right? Of course you have to obey. If the leader's authority and policy is an expression of people's idea, why, why don't you reject it, right? Because it's from, coming from top. right? So you, you think about the hierarchy as a symbiotic reciprocity between the leaders and the led. The leaders in the land. And I mean the family is, is becoming the father figure or maybe mother figure. Mother has also has the authority to lead the children in the right way, to cultivate the children in the right way, raise the children the right way. Still. So you, you can soften that hierarchy. I would even go to go on to say that no hierarchy, no society. Because uh, order is always in, any kind of order uh, always involves hierarchy. Otherwise it's just chaotic. It's anarchy. It's anarchy.
1: I actually feel anarchism is the thing that I pursue, but again, maybe that's another utopia. Um, yeah. But yes, we can continue our questions. Our next yeah. question is actually coming to fourth and fifth chapters of this monograph that is about the Korean War films and the socialist films. So, how do you see the relationship between politics and the aesthetics in your analysis
0: of these two kinds of films? Mm-hmm. Politics we know uh, it's commonly regarded as about, as being about power relations and struggle. Aesthetics is about emotion, feeling, sensibility, and sometimes uh, manifest in art and performance. Right. Mm. But what we see in Chinese notion of politics in the films, and uh, is a kind of politics is animated, not by power dynamics, not by uh, intriguing or some kind of a struggle, but by culture and spirit, emotion, and bodily mobilization of bodily energy. Politics, uh, in this sense, is driven by an aesthetic experience, meaning uh, emotional, sensuous, vibrantly sensuous, and spiritual experience. So uh, in uh, Heroic Sons and Daughters, you'll find that the art and uh, performance inspires some kind of spirit, fighting spirit, right? And the spirit is supposed to translate into military power, uh, like the power of uh, battle, fighting energy and power. It's a, a soldier's body and a sort of a a potential it expanded into is weaponized. I say it's weaponized. Right? This constitutes what what I call the politics of spirit, or what what the the scholar call it call it the Mouse military romanticism. Military, uh, it's like a a soldier's power is greater than weapons, is superior to weapons.
1: If I may add to that, I think in these two chapters, you also discuss a lot about the relationship between ethnicity, nation, and class. Would you like to elaborate on that as well?
0: Mm -hmm. The category of class comes up because it is a way to transcend the ethnic divide uh, that we find in a lot of the criticism of Chinese Han perspective. A lot of people say uh, there's a Han perspective. Han people from the cultural center, right, are looking down upon ethnic groups as exotic, right, as other, right? And a and male gaze looking at women as very exotic, other as subordinated to, to the male gaze, that sort of thing. This kind of perspective uh, is premised upon ethnic sort of a hierarchy, right? Han is the, on the top of hierarchy. So uh, uh, ethnic people group like Bai Zhu is in the lower level of hierarchy. Uh, but my the introduction of the class and socialism is is meant to to say that actually people of different ethnicities uh, may come together as a class that liberate themselves from the earlier structure of exploitation and domination, maybe by the tribal, tribal leaders, right? By their local leaders. And they, they tried to create a condition for to develop their social, political, a, a society that allows them to prosper to achieve the the fruits of social economic development. So this is a liberated people. If you use class uh, liberated from actually ethnic, the kind of control that is based on ethnic culture. So ethnicity itself is not not always like positive thing because it's it's, it's related to some kind of a pre-modern tribal kind of structure. It's not necessary when you say ethnic identity, sometimes people say, oh, that's good, because it's really, it asserts the, the identity of the people. Oh, okay, that's, that's okay. If the identity is, is, is for the benefits of the whole group. But the, the ethnic identity, its ethnic divide in the socialist landscape may not be for the benefits of the common ethnic people, because it's, it's really marked the identity of the ruling class. Category of class become very, very useful to transcend the traditionally entrenched ethnic cultural boundaries right, and the political structure and bring different kind of people into a common ground. Uh, that is the uh, working for the prosperity of a Common society, right? Everybody wins, supposedly, just everybody wins in the situation. Uh, you can see that the, uh, the people are brought out of their own ethnic background into a market fair, right? You can see the marketplace, everybody comes in and enjoy the exchange of goods, arts, and performance and golden flowers, right?
1: Yeah, I do think there's a very interesting tension and also dynamic between ethnicity and class as what you just described, especially in this socialist film, Five Golden Flowers. And I definitely recommend everyone to watch it. Now let's come to your sixth chapter about global Maoism. So what is global Maoism and how does it play out in cultural productions and social developments? How do depoliticization and repoliticization connect to a discussion of this third world?
0: I present Maoism in terms of uh, self-reliance, actually, Gengsheng, because uh, China was isolated, not by, by itself, by, by the so-called world community, right? <laughs> Basically, the superpowers isolated China. But uh, Maoism is also also refers to the pursuit of alternative social economic development. It's a reliance on the mobilized people, including the third world people. It is a faith in the people's power against bureaucratic and technocratic path of modernity. So there is this idea of the modernity as a technocratic and engineering project, it's a scientific and problem, administrative program to be managed by experts, uh, scientists, uh, and bureaucrats who know better than people. A, a good image to show Maoism at work is the Barefoot Doctor. Uh, Barefoot Doctor in the film, Chen uh, Miao, is a very good example, concrete example, of Maoism as a grassroot, Movements to challenge the technocratic bureaucratic agenda of modernity. The technocratic bureaucratic agenda of modernity is also a part of the co world vision of the world order. The world order uh, should be should follow, I mean, according to that kind of Cold War view of the world, the, the, the world was progress on the science and technology, on the, on the experts uh, and technocratic elites, not on, the pe- not on the working class people. So the Beverly doctor present a belief in the people's own initiatives. They started this practice on their own. Uh, it's a radical new thing, xin sheng shu, right? against monopoly of experts, doctors, and bureaucrats to, to run their own medical uh, clinics, uh, medical care, and right, treatment. A benefit doctor works against inequality between the power, powerful and powerless, inequality between the city and the countryside. Now, this challenge of social power it's a social and grassroots power against technocratic elitism is a threat. It's, it's really a, a narrative, very important narrative that has a worldwide resonance, has the worldwide notion. It's about, really about searching for alternative kind of a modernization. This idea lies at the heart of the world, third world movement. A lot of people in the third world movement also started this kind of practice. If doctor and other kind of like uh, land reform, movements. people would take control of their own destiny and take control of their own life. It's, it relates to the contemporary movements of the global south. The global south will not be dependent on global capital. They will have their own society and economic model. Right. That's just alternative. Right. Now, about depoliticization, the whole domination of technocratic and administrative regime, right? This, this is the key that they say, uh, modernization narrative said, this is the key to sort of norm, normal, universal modernization. That is already a sign of depoliticization. Why? Because it is... A, it it is uh, has emphasis on the administrative regime. The whole drives to modernize depends on the administrative regime. Depend on the state experts bureaucrats. Right. This is not a political regime. It's not a political regime. By political, I I, I mean that political is really about mobilizing the social power to build their own community and. Politics, that's political. But the modernization technocratic model says no to that because people don't have power, people are just uh, tools, objects. So, this kind of a vision, technocratic vision, treats the population and individual as objects of administration and control, right? So people have no voice. The people are not participants in the political process. They are not citizens. They're just objects and tools. They don't have a voice in the political process. And they have no part to play in decision-making. Decisions that affect their their own lives. They have no part of it, right? It's all controlled by the higher order elites, right? Who supposedly know better. That that is a depoliticization. In terms of depoliticized teaching of China, right, in American classroom, we can can also see that there is a turning away from the political mobilization of people in building their own community and politics. So you you think of China uh, simply as an object, That has no history, right? People just, it's just an economic project. The sort of depoliticization in the American classroom in teaching actually means the inability and refusal to treat a country with a sovereign power to build and carve out its own path of history, of its own culture, and political formation. So he's not just, as a person, it's not a server intelligent person the country is not intelligent subject doing its own thing it's just simply a under my gaze right it, it it's there china is there as far as as it fits into for my understanding for our students understanding china is to be treated in terms of how that country fits into a established pattern of world capitalism how do they fit into the world capitalist? That's China, and as as a personal attitude, uh, the depoliticization attitude treat China as a means to satisfy my preference and my desire. Right, China is a workplace. China is a exotic. So, in a in a very broad framework, that I quote from uh, Alistair McIntyre, the De-politicized stance uh, treats others as a means, not as an end. You treat people as, as, as only a means to some, something, uh, not as an end. Treat people as an end means people are, have own subjectivity, right, have their own participation, have their own say in mapping out their own destiny and process. And this is not there. Very often, it's, often it's, a, it's a vacuum in the students' understanding of China. China is, is a picture, it's an image, right? Very superficial. If you think about the uh, once-born time uh, in China, Shanghai uh, Jishi, that we, I discussed in, uh, in the de- depoliticization chapter, you can see that the uh, liberation of Shanghai is the event uh, that is na- a sort of narrated by the film but it, ironically the political event of liberating shanghai shanghai liberation was taken away like basically is stripped of its political content so the liberation of shanghai is not a political event a political and revolutionary event but an economic and managerial event it suggests that this capitalist daughter right single-handedly bring Shanghai from the woods, from trouble, right? From, from the economic and social political trouble, right? Because he's a, he's a very wise capitalist person and is so the seeds of capitalism. It, it means that it's, the whole film suggests that capitalism liberates Shanghai. And, and Shanghai's liberation is a social economic event, not a political event. Political event means that it's people who are building their own nation, right? Politically. Now, what, what's a political? Political means police. Police means building a political community, right? By society and, and the people. It's not just simply the leaders. Leaders can only do so much. Without the mass of people, you cannot build a nation. But here in, in, the, in the capitalist line of narrative, Shanghai is a Liberation Shanghai is a capitalist event, the, how Shanghai fit into global capitalism, basically. So to repoliticize, as the question asked, to repoliticize, hmm. we have to bring the contest, political contest, that means a lot of history, uh, into our discussion of, of Chinese images. In uh, Balzac and Little Chinese history, that another film that is also deprived, is, is, is sort of a empty out uh, the political contents. Like, uh, they, they, they just read uh, Balzac, right? As Balzac is a godsend. It's a, is a universal Western culture. But they, they don't read Ruxin. Uh They don't know that, that Balzac is a very important uh, inspiration for Tolibo to jumpstart some kind of political idea of realism.
1: If I may follow up with that question of depoliticization and repoliticization, you actually proposed uh, a lot of other ideas about changing the situation. Do you want to elaborate more on that point as well?
0: In the last chapter, uh, I basically just restate the element of culture in mobilizing political forces. So it still runs the same kind of thesis that says the uh, political uh, Needs to be animated, maybe driven by sort cultural experience and cultural mobilization and spiritual sort of elevation. It's a very, very confusion idea. Morality takes the lead of political power struggle. Morality and culture takes the lead. But I also try to distinguish sort of a culturally animated, culturally driven. Uh, idea of politics from the politics as a real naked uh, political struggle. Uh, that, that's another notion of hegemony, right? right. There's uh, two kinds of hegemony. One is dominant power. The other is leadership, right? Uh, it's from, from Granci's idea. It's got, uh, uh, leadership, meaning you have to win the heart and mind of the population. You need to have a legitimacy. Legitimacy is culture, is culture. That's how you mobilize people. That's how you jumpstart political movements.
1: Now that we come to the very end of the whole book, you actually end the book with a question. So I quote, will China rule the world or bring harmony to it? End of quote. So what is your vision or what is your ideal utopia? So whom do you want to address this question to?
0: Uh, My sense is that China uh, will try, will continue to try in the face of all challenges uh, and attack. They try to bring an image of harmony, Datong, into the world. Even even though they, they have not succeeded, the Chinese leaders and Chinese intellectuals have been trying to bring this idea into the world. So Mao actually said uh, in the 70s, uh, I, quote, I quote him in my the last paragraph, I think, that uh, China should never become a hegemony. He- hegemony in the best sense, meaning uh, a dominant power. Right. Uh, I think that point still holds still holds. Now my vision of utopia is that I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the likelihood of a realized utopia. Utopia is just a vision, right? Just a vision. And if we think about uh, a realized vision, maybe we are not doing a good service. I cannot predict, uh, and I I shouldn't, should not predict, right? What kind of vision would be realized? What, what kind of blueprint will come into being right that, that's not what I want to, to say right I think nobody can say that but what I learned from my own research and my my look at history is that uh, from all these past uh, surveys examination is that just simply harboring the dream of a Tong dreams or tianxia dream, itself is important, right? Harboring this dream is very important. Dream the dream is very important. It's very precious and significant because it makes it less likely that China is going to be another imperial power to dominate the world. Because you, you have this idea that China is, is obligated to play a a friendly park right, in the world, right? This is the, what long history has been about, right? If you remember that dream, you will come to the world not as a elephant in the room, right? Just smashing everything. You'll come to a very, come to the room as a friendly force, <laughs> uh, factors, right? Uh, to make friends to ensure that we coexist in a sort of more friendly way, uh, to have a win-win situation in economic and social development. There's trade and commerce, right? As we imagined back in the past, right? There's a trade route. Here we have one belt, one row. Uh, That actually benefits a lot of local areas as well as, of course, China. But it's it's still, I would say, it's, it's not a... Exploitative situation. I, I doubt if it is exploitative situation. I think keeping that dream alive itself just very, very important and very precious as we, we are confronted with the world is it's going down the, almost like going to the disintegration, right? It's disintegrate into a warring party, the conflicted and polarized and divisive.
1: If I may answer the second half of the question, I think you are asking this question to everyone who is reading your book. And I think that's very important to always keep in mind and keep thinking. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I, I just uh, keep the, yeah, the, and the question, uh, uh, who do, do, do I address my thesis to? Of course, the people who have doubt about China's intention, right? People who think China is uh, cynically think China is is an elephant in in a room, going to smash everything. i would just tell them that you just look Chinese history. Chinese history, China actually has not done that much smashing of the things in the room. And then also, the uh, intellectuals have always thought about China as a uh, friendly factors right in the world and the socialism also uh, feel uh, the uh, also conceived of china as a aligning with the oppressed fighting against the hegemonic power not not to conquer the world but fighting against hegemonic power
1: great so now that we have finished the discussion of this particular book, I'm wondering about your next book project. So, what's your next book project?
0: I, I've just actually completed the book manuscript. Oh wow! Uh, it's about <laughs> the, the, the because the the current uh, China in the world is a book that was basically done about two years ago, right? Uh, it's it's copy edited right? about it's early last year during the COVID. I have plenty of time to revise and rewrite. And expand some articles that I, I wrote during the courses I taught uh, in the last five years, five or six years. Uh, the courses are about ecology. So the, the, the book is about the, just the finished book, uh, it's about ecology, technology, and labor. I argue that the root cause of ecological crisis is political and social economic systems not our attitude about nature. It's not about our attitude towards nature. It's about its political system, it's the system. It's a capitalist system, overproduction, consumption, uh, over extraction of natural resources. That is the system that is at fault, and the system that dominates nature and human beings. That's the problem. Uh, So rather than the ethical and metaphysical matter of thinking about nature, uh, ecological philosophy uh, uh, urges us to think about nature in the way we think about, think like a mountain, think like trees, right? That's an ethical idea. It does not touch the political issue of the system. So I think it's, it's a political issue. It's not it's a simply ethical issue. So, so I approach ecological crisis as a historical product of capitalist modernity. So sti- still, Still, follow my earlier thesis. It's still a critique of capitalist modernity as the culprit of uh, ecological crisis. So I critique uh capitalist economic agenda, its production, its, its consumption and its technocratic, techno scientific myth of progress, of infinite development, of uh, scientific triumphalism and utopia. I also look at uh, Chinese film. Literature of the old days, uh, the socialist era. Some, some of them. Yeah, I investigate political, politics and technology and labor process and human engagement with nature. And I apply Frankfurt School, Frankfurt School uh, critical theory and what you might call the critical ecology. Uh, there's there's been a uh, discovery of a. So ecological implication of critical theory in, Walter Benjamin Adorno and, and many other people? Uh, so there's eco eco critical critique of capitalist system, in Frankfurt school. Uh, there's another school that I borrowed. that is the uh, they call it eco socialism, right? Eco Uh, made the main figure in this eco socialism is uh, John Foster Foster, All right, Uh, he wrote. wrote uh, many many books uh, about how a different kind of system of production of engagement with nature will help solve the at least deal with a the crisis in the relationship between human human production and nature. So the the book uh, continues my critique of technocratic path of modernity, which is very very has already brought about ecological crisis and environmental troubles, right? And I still try to posit a different alternative model of production of nature and human society.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I, I'm really looking forward to your new book, and it's coming out. So wow, so excited to hear that. And and again, thank you so much for accepting this interview from New Books Network and coming to New Books Network. And I wish I can keep this a very thought provoking discussion with you in the near future. Thank you so
0: much. I uh, thank you too for inviting me to chat about my book in such a wonderful platform. Uh, it makes me think more clearly uh, <laughs> about my own idea. And I hope when uh, the ecology book uh, comes out, we can have another online chat. <laughs> well, yeah,
1: definitely, yeah. definitely looking yeah. forward to it. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah.